Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August 29, 2013, and this is episode 1197 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a good one for you today. I've got a listener uh, hanging on the line here named Damon Butts. He's uh, from uh, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Gets kind of cold there, in case you're not familiar with, I don't know, a globe. Uh, but, uh, he's here to talk to us about what to do when it's that cold, winter camping. And he has uh, an extensive uh, array of knowledge. I was kind of blown away with how much hands-on, real-world experience that he has with doing this and the uh, the hugely in-depth answers that he gives to the questions. I'll have him in just a moment. I want to go ahead and take care of our housekeeping, and uh, I've got some stuff in the housekeeping uh, after I get through with the typical stuff that you may want to listen to if you're one of those people that uh, skips over, including a brand-new introductory segment to TSP that I think is an awesome, awesome idea. Anyway, uh Let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors of the day first and foremost. Sponsor of the day number one today, Survival Gear Bags. Hey, if you want great bags to put your survival gear in, go to survivalgearbags.com. You want great gear to put in the bag that you're going to buy or already have? Go to survivalgearbags.com. They've got it all. Kelly John Doe runs that site. He's actually a member of the TSP community going a long way back, known as Cart Pusher on the forum. He was in the uh, distribution world when he found TSP, not early, early, pre-episode 100 time frame, and uh, put together some group buys for folks on the forum and uh, realized, hey, I can make a go out of this and created a brand new business. Uh, and today he and his family earn a living from that business, survivalgearbags.com. And he's a great, great sponsor, and I love having him. Uh, working with us so much so that he's even the guy that runs the TSP Gear Shop. You can find it at tspgear.com. So if uh, if he did a good enough job that I gave him the gear shop, that should tell you how I feel about his company, Survival Gear Bags. He also offers a discount to MSB members. Check it out before you buy from survivalgearbags.com. Log into your MSB account. Get the discount code. Next up today, Backyard Food Production, the awesome, the amazing Marjorie Wildcraft, who makes her home someplace south of Austin. One of the harsher environments in Texas and still is able to raise a huge portion of their own food on their own land. And they'll show you how to do the same. They'll teach you how to turn your backyard into a food production machine. Whether you have a tenth of an acre in the suburbs or a hundred acres in the country, you can emulate the systems that they're using. And they'll show you how to do everything from food preservation to carbohydrate props to raising livestock, producing protein. Uh, everything you can think of, water, irrigation, gravity flow, you name it, it's all in one DVD at BackyardFoodProduction.com. Uh, they do do a discount also for MSB members, so you'll want to check your benefits area before you order that. But even if you're not an MSB member, this is one where you really want to go to the SurvivalPodcast.com and either click on the link in today's show notes or in their banner in the right-hand margin. Reason being, she gives a special deal to all members of the TSP audience, not just the MSB. The MSB just gets an even better deal. Uh, with that, that's a great reason to consider joining the MSB. I get you great deals. I get you discounts from lots of people, like 40 different vendors. It's awesome. I'm working to do even more for you guys. i got some people I'm looking at bringing on in, uh, in September I think you'll be uh, really pleased with if you're an existing member or considering joining. Anyway, join the MSB, support the show at 18.3 cents an episode, and get all those great discounts. 
over $200 worth of free ebooks and other great stuff. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. Uh, you guys qualify for a discount. You also qualify for that discount if you are a uh, EMT, a paramedic, a firefighter, or other first responders. Just email me before you join. Email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put service discount in the subject line. Ask me, and uh, not ask me, tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. Reserve that down to about two sentences. I don't need a, you know your full CV or don't photocopy your ID card or anything like that, guys. Just tell me who you are and what you're doing and... Uh, And I'll approve you for that and send you the discount code. That's pretty much an honor system anyway. All right, with that wrapped up, I want to kind of segue here. Uh, we're not really out of the intro segment. I don't know if we are or we aren't because I'm not sure where I'm going to consider this going uh, from now on. But I have a new segment, and uh, it was suggested to me by a listener. I'll tell you who he was tomorrow because I was in today. I'll get second part that I have pre-intro that will explain why I'm a little discombobulated today in a good good way. This guy sent me an email yesterday. He said, dude, you're, you're about to come up you know, on 1,200 episodes and, and be going through 2,000 episodes over the next year or so. What would be cool is uh, if every day, whatever the episode was, so today's 1197, you told people some things that happened in that year. So today's 1197. So what happened in the year 1197? The only thing wrong with that suggestion is it didn't come like for episode like 10. It would have been so awesome if I've been doing this. And you know, in the future, I won't have to explain it. I'll just do it. Um, and it's not going to be a huge list of things. And some of the stuff. That, and it basically, Wikipedia has done all the work for me. It, it tells you some things that have been going on. So we'll uh, we'll just read it out of there. And some of the names that might be thrown around in there, I might not really know who they are. Many people may not know who they are, so I may skip a few. But I think if we actually start looking at this history, we'll realize something that I think a lot of people don't realize, and that's how long a lot of the problems and possible solutions have been floated around in the world. So here we go. In the year 1197, under by area in Wikipedia, it says, Genghis Khan, in Asia, Genghis Khan defeats the Jerkins. Molokai's father gives him and his brother to Genghis Khan as a personal hereditary slave. Uh, uh, Almarak II succeeds Henry II of Champagne as the king of Jerusalem. In Europe, Theobald III becomes the court of Champagne. Caelion becomes Tsar of Bulgaria. Corfu is occupied by the Genovese. <laughs> Hubert Walker, the Archbishop of Canterbury, negotiates a peace with Wales. So we have the Archbishop in a Catholic church negotiating a peace with the, at time, nation-state of Wales. North Crawley is split into the Great Crawley and Little Crawley. I don't even know where Crawley is. Philip of Swarbia marries Irene Angelia, daughter of the Byzantine Emperor Isaac II. The Danes attack Estonia. Sarsen pirates from the Balearic Islands raid the city of Toulon in the province and the Benedictine Monastery in St. Honat on the Lerns Islands. Uh, by topic, in, in under market, they have rainy weather causes the harvest to fail in Western Europe. One of the worst famines of the century ensues. And in religion, Aubroth Abbey is constructed and dedicated to St. Thomas Becket. If any of those kind of strike you and you want to know who that person was and dig deeper into it, there's a link to the 1197 Wikipedia page, and you can check that out. I think this will be fun. This might not be the most interesting year, but the one that I key in on there, rainy weather causes the harvest to fail in Western Europe, and one of the worst famines of the century ensues. 
problems are not new. Um, let's see, some births. Anybody I really would know? No. Um, deaths. Henry II of Champagne dies. Henry VI, Holy Roman Emperor, dies. Uh, that's about anybody there that I would know. <laughs> anyway, uh, so 1197, interesting year. We'll be doing this from now on unless people tell me they hate it. Uh, it'll probably take a lot less time in the future, probably about one minute an episode and just a little look back into history. Anyway, next I want to talk real quick about permaethos, the concept I laid out yesterday for a basically libertarian, anarcho, eco-village type community. Um, the response is overwhelming. Uh, I spent two to three hours today sorting through emails, putting people into two different folders, one for people that wanted to be considered as leasers and the other for people that wanted to be considered investors. I set up a website yesterday called permaethos.com, P-E-R-M-A, E-T-H-O-S dot com. I'm going to be doing pretty much all my updates from there from now on. People that are already on this list, so to speak, I'm going to be emailing them uh, and get on that site by tomorrow, a way for them to sign up on that site for automatic updates whenever I do a post. Um, it's something that already I cannot manage the responses to everybody's questions, so I'm going to answer all the questions that, that are you know worthy of being answered at this point in public, and I'm going to answer those questions uh, that people are concerned with if they want to be a, a leasing member of the community or if they want to be an investor. We're going to be completely public about how this is run. It's not like investors are the only ones that know what our profit share or something like that will be. Uh, everything will be fully disclosed. I would say there's some questions that come across kind of distrusting. If you distrust that much, don't bother. Just don't bother. Um, I mean, we're doing this completely transparently, and you know, you can either decide you want to be involved or you don't. And I would say this to those that are that way. I have enough people already that I don't need you. I, I, I know that sounds harsh. I'm sorry, but it's, it's the truth. So um, I'm going to explain everything as we're able to. And if that's not good enough for somebody, then they can either wait or go do something else. I am not going to use a huge amount of TSP's resources to talk about this um, on an ongoing basis. That's why I set up the little blog for Permanent Ethos separately so people that want to pay attention to that screen, so to speak, can tune the channel in there. And people that are like, it's interesting, but I don't want to hear about it every day, don't have to. The reason I'm putting it on today's show is because I just set the blog up. And because it's, I mean, guys, I can't tell you, the, the response is unbelievable. Uh, from people that are like sticking their toe in the water on investors to people that are like, I'm ready now. I'm ready. Whatever you're going to do, I want to be part of it. Uh, some fairly large investors as well that, that seem to feel that way. All I can say for everybody that wants to be involved and has questions is some of the questions cannot be answered until we put together the consortium of investors and as investors we discuss the total project and come to an agreement and put the money into the company. We capitalize it into the corporation, and it's there. And now we're land shopping. And that's the way it'll work. We'll agree to certain parameters. Everybody will put their money into the company, and the company will buy the land. That's And, and, and then there's some other questions that we can't answer until we find the right piece of land. Because a lot of questions change based on what we find. If we find a piece of land that's on you know, the Neshes River or the Trinity River or the Brazos River, which would be ideal, a lot of concerns kind of get dissipated to a large degree. Um, there's certain things, though, that we just cannot answer. And then there's certain things that I think some people need to 
reassess whether this is the type of thing you want to be involved with as a permanent resident or at least having a lot for residency because if you're looking for Wisteria Lane uh, or something like that, it's it's not going to be like that. It's not going to be your conventional subdivision with little boxes all in a row. It's just not. It's going to be something that's more of a pioneering endeavor. Uh, it's going to probably take most people some level of sacrifice, uh, not so much financially, but uh, comfort-wise to produce whatever they want for their permanent living residence uh, on their property. Uh, we do have some very lax legislative restriction in Texas once we get into an unincorporated part of the county. There's pretty much no code enforcement. Uh, you pretty much don't need permits for anything. About the only thing the man gets involved with out that far is if you want to put in a septic tank. And that's not a big deal. And generally, the only restriction is it has to have at least an acre lot to be a septic tank uh, in some areas due to the way soil's draining and all. So that is by having one acre minimum lease lots, that's kind of mitigated immediately. Um, with power and water and utilities, the answer is we don't know and we won't know until we find a property and assess how that would happen, find out that it's reasonable to bring it in, and then that's part of the purchasing pro uh, process. Um, up until the day that we buy the piece of land, the, the owners that are selected to be part of the investor group will make all the decisions. Uh, people that are interested in getting a lot, uh, you, your voice is important. We'll do the best we can to listen to you, but it, we're going to make a decision based on we have a fiduciary responsibility to everybody that will get involved afterwards to make sure this works. So we're going to buy the best land we can with the end in mind. And the end in mind is having a 100 or more people or 100 or more families that live on site or at least have the potential to live on site and serving a group of people that come in as temporary residents and serving more of the general public from a standpoint of running educational programs and producing things that can be sold outside of the community. And that all has to be taken into consideration. So when we look at a piece of land, we have to have you know an attorney look at that piece of land with us and uh, you know someone that, that deals with utilities and say, yes, you can bring in, you know, you, and we, what's the cost going to be? Because again, my initial numbers may change. You know, maybe it might become $5,000 to buy the lease option and then a couple hundred dollars a month. I don't know. It'll depend on what we have to do and what we decide to do. Because we may decide to do something a little radical. And then we may say, do we think that'll work for the people that are residents? And we'll have this big list of people and say, would you guys still want to buy in if we did things this way? What is that? I don't know yet. I'm just saying we could come up to it. And if we do, and if everybody's like, I'm not, I'm out if you're doing that, we'll be like, well, that's a dumb idea. People have been asking things like, how do the residents, you know, keep some sort of check on an ownership board that's, you know, a benevolent dictatorship? Number one, there's a contract going in that can't be changed. Certain things that are agreed to on both sides. And that's, that is a, a commitment, a deal, a, a handshake taken to paper that can't be violated and is legally sanctioned. So that that's part of it. The other part of it is we have to have your buy-in to make this successful. This is not government, 
This is not an HOA. This is a free association of men based on a fair exchange of value. And I think for some people, it's hard to just go, oh, that's what that is, because it's something so foreign, so foreign, that, you know, people don't really understand it or they don't trust it. All I can say is, I've been doing this for five years. I've never broken my word to any of you guys. Um, we'll do the right thing, and we have enough interest that we know we have enough people to do it with us. And... Um, That's a good position to be in because it lets us not have to compromise what's right. Um, I can tell you right now, I've had a lot of interest from people that are potential investors. Not everybody that's willing to invest is even going to be accepted as an investor. I, I can tell you that right now. Not because I've already ruled somebody out for one reason or another, but because I have enough people already without really putting it together saying I'd be in, that I know we can be selective when it comes down to it. Um, what I would encourage people to do, that want to be an investor and don't get to be, is buy a lot, buy a lease on a lot, and take the money you would have invested in the, the total concept and invest it in your lot. You know, if you can afford $25,000 to put into this community, well, you can buy a lot for a lot less than that and put a lot of improvements into your lot. So um, I know it's, I, you can't do anything like this to make everybody happy. I know that when it comes down to, to, uh, to taking leasees, we're going to end up, at least for the first, you know, if we do 100 for the first 50, going through applications and, and looking at them, just like you would if you were renting apartments and you had over, overwhelming demand. Um, you know, and some, some level of first priority will be given to people that are saying, I'm going to be living here permanently or at least six months out of the year. We need some stability. So, or, you know, I have, I guarantee you if somebody emails me and says, I want to live on site and I want to build my own house right away, and, and I have like an excavator and a trencher and a bulldozer that I'll be bringing with me, and I'd be willing to be hired on uh, to do work on the, on the thing and do work for people, <laughs> you're getting in. You get, I don't care if you come in last place and putting your hand up, if there's a lot available to that person, and that's in the best interest of the community. I'm going to give one more thing on this that we're going to go in, and again, I'm going to handle almost all of this from this point on, including I might do, I wouldn't call them podcasts, but little audio segments like this that I'll put over at Perma Ethos where people can listen to them because I'm better at talking than writing. Um, also, the, the last thing I want to cover is that there's been a lot of people saying, why just do 100? Why not 300, 400, 500? You can just be as big as you want. And the reality is, you know, my initial numbers were based on, you know, is anybody even going to want to do this with me? Uh, and with this response, I think that we have enough investors lined up uh, that, you know, not everybody that says they're interested is going to be interested when they get the final deal. But we know we can have it at least enough that we'll select uh, that we can probably fund somewhere in the neighborhood between three and four hundred acres. And we can probably then take that up to at least initially 150 to 200 permanently seats. And we may, over time, develop the property and then actually open it up to uh, more than that. I think that if you had a 400-acre property, a freaking 75 to 100 acres of it set aside for common area and farming and stuff like that is plenty um, to support the, the counterbalancing community and offer a lot of opportunities for uh, cottage industries and things like that. Um, so... It'll probably be bigger already than we initially planned, and it's good because it's land gets less as you buy more. Uh, the other side of it is that people have been saying, well, why not do one in North Carolina? Why don't you do one in Florida? Wait, okay, just stop, okay? Just stop. I'm sorry, okay? I My 
full commitment will be to getting one going full on first. And if you want one in Florida, I suggest that you build one. Uh, another, you know, and, 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 but I do think there'll be more than one of these. I do think myself and the initial investors might build one a year or establish one a year, uh, maybe starting two to three years out. Once we get, we have a proven, proven concept. There's more to this. I'll, I'll start doing more updates at permaethos.com and, You know, basically what I'll do to keep the, the channel clear, so to speak, is if I have something big that's been put over there, since this reaches a very wide audience, I'll say, hey, I just made a big uh, update over at Permaethos. It's about XYZ, and they'll be linked in today's show notes. And that that's what I'm going to have to do, or this will totally, at least initially with this groundswell, monopolize the show, and I don't want that. Okay, so hopefully I haven't done that today, <laughs> and hopefully you guys will give me a little bit of leeway because, again, I just spent three hours dealing with questions and stuff like that and putting people in folders and trying to figure out how to do this, uh, but uh, I've got that done. I'm ready to bring our special guest on now. His name is Damon Butts. Again, he's from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. He's here to talk to us about winter camping. With that, hey, Damon, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, so I've got you on to talk about uh, winter camping today, and it's 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 the hottest blazes today. But we're actually rapidly heading into the next season, fall, and in some parts of the world, we'll be seeing winter temperatures really, really quick. Uh, so this is really a good time to be talking about this and giving people time to maybe uh, gear up for giving it a shot. Uh, but before we get into like the how tos, the whats, the whatnots, uh, can you just kind of tell people a little bit about your background and and how you came to get you know. In, in, imbibed in this world of, uh, of winter camping when everybody else seems to want to go camping when it's, uh, you know, 100 degrees out in June? Yeah, sure. Um, I was always into outdoor stuff, you know, like yourself, you go fishing, doing some car camping, you know, doing some hikes, things like that my whole life. So we were always grew up doing outdoor stuff. Uh, but as an adult, I kind of uh, was persuaded to join a hiking group. And uh, from there, it was like the rabbit hole. And uh, you never look back. So basically, I joined a hiking group and um, started doing hikes at first. Uh, and then I uh, started doing backpack trips in the summer. And uh, once I got uh, some snowshoes, I started doing backpack trips in the winter. And that became my, uh, by far my favorite uh, types of trips to do. So I, I'm kind of, my idea was is that uh, I kind of started with like a medium level of outdoor skills. You know, just regular, regular Joe. But, you know, after uh, joining these hiking groups, surrounding myself with uh, amazing hikers and backpackers, learning about gear, learning tricks and experiencing problems and having issues on site, um, you know, I've got to that next level where, you know, I enjoy going winter camping safely and I'm never cold and I'm always comfortable and I always have an awesome time. So, yeah, it's uh, definitely, um, uh, definitely my new, my new passion the last several years is uh, winter camping, organizing trips with the local hiking group um, to uh, take out uh, beginners who uh, we take on uh, overnight uh, tenting trips and overnight, excuse me, overnight trips for uh, uh, hiking into huts. And we, uh, we take them in wearing snowshoes and sometimes we go in wearing Nordic touring skis. And uh, yeah, we have a really good time and, uh, We've had uh, a lot of great success, and we've had a lot of people converted to, to winter camping, you know. And when when you say 
I need to go winter camping this weekend, people think you're crazy. <laughs> because they think, how is it possible that you could possibly stay comfortable winter camping? You know, it's you're camping in a tent in the snow. So, yeah, it's always, uh, and uh, maybe the fact that you're doing something that other people don't usually do or even think it's possible, that might be part of the reason why, uh, you know, where you get an extra little bit of a kick out of it, right? Could you talk about, like, what kind of a trip uh, this information will prepare our listeners to, to take? Like, what what's it like out there camping in wintertime? I I think you just actually mentioned something that's kind of advantageous. Like, it's one thing, you, uh, I'm going to get away from it all. I'm going to go camping. And then you get out, and there's, like, five million soccer moms with their kids running around. So it's probably not as, uh, not as much competition for space, I would guess. No. So... So what we do is, uh, what we'll do is we'll plan, especially since there's a lot of people who want to explore winter camping for the first time. So what we do is we'll pick a trip that's maybe two to three kilometers in, uh, with, uh, you know, a moderate elevation gainer, gainer loss. And, uh, we'll, um, uh, we'll snowshoe in, uh, with our backpacks, with our, everything we need for an overnight trip. And there'll be, uh, pretty much never anybody else there. So you're always isolated. You're always have the whole place to yourself. And, you know, a lot of times you're using the same camp uh, backpack and backcountry campgrounds that people use in the summer, but using them in the winter, you have them all to yourself. So if you have listeners who are like, I, I don't want to have to go to the washroom in the, in the snow or whatever, a lot of times we'll hit a place where there's actually, there might be an outhouse out there if we pass by a, a campsite, if we choose to camp there, or if we go camp in the bush. So we definitely, the trips kind of fall into two categories. So a short trip overnight into a tent, and then we also do overnight trip uh, where we can ski or snowshoe into a hut. And in those cases, we'll carry less gear. And usually how long do you stay out? Just overnight, well, or do you do longer trips? or? You know, typically with, with new people, we do one-day trips. We just do overnight trips, and we... Um, uh, we try and keep it uh, something that's easy, that is uh, safe, and that uh, no matter what, a one-day trip, it's you're not that far in the bush and you can get out if there's any problems, right? Um, for multi-day trips, uh, for tenting, I think the limiting factor is, is uh, fire. And so if you don't have access to, to fire and firewood, that becomes more difficult because we can do multi-day trips where we go to a shelter and we can go and do day trips from there for, for weeks, right, as long as we have enough food and stuff like that. Um, but as far as with tenting, the limiting factor for, for us when we go out is, uh, you know, we need to dry some of our stuff off. And, you know, if, if we have a problem or some of our stuff got wet, um, then we need fire as our limiting factor. So that's kind of what limits us for doing multi-day trips. So if, if we hit an area where there's no availability of firewood, we'll actually take a cast leg and we'll pull in firewood. And so, like, last trip I did, I pulled in 90 pounds of firewood behind me for about, like, four kilometers. And then we just kind of hunkered down and dug a fire pit and stamped out a nice uh, level base for our campsite so that we didn't sink in. And uh, we uh, hunkered down. We were really comfortable, actually. So you brought in that much firewood. You guys, what, did you bring that in behind you, like, on a drag sled or... Yeah, that's exactly. Well, that's not bad. I mean, there's a winter yeah. camping advantage right there. You throw all your gear on a sled, and that's you're not going to do that in the summertime, dragging it across rocks anywhere near as easily. Well, you know, the thing is too is that sometimes you might be able to grab some wood on site, right? But uh, if you're loud, where we go in the parks, there's certain rules for for harvesting firewood, right? 
Yeah. But um, typically, typically we're we're pulling in. We carry everything in our backpacks, and we're just only pulling the wood on the sled. Because if we run into any problems, we want to make sure we have all of our gear on our body uh, in case of problems. Because if that sled flies down a hill and disappears, you're so screwed, right? Yeah. And if it had your backpack attached to it, um, <laughs> you could be endangering your life, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, we, we always keep all our stuff on our person, and the only thing we'll pull is, is uh, some wood. And uh, But, uh, yeah, typically that's the limiting factor. That's why when we do multi-day trips, we prefer to be in a... Uh, in a hut or a shelter sure. because we'll have a fire, fireplace and stuff like that. But I know lots of guys who do multi-day trips without fire. It's just for us. I, I find for myself, there's always someone who's got something that's gotten wet, you know, and it's, yeah. it invariably happens. And, you know, it can be as innocent as sleeping in the tent and there's condensation in the tent and you lean your sleeping bag against the wall where you slept and you wake up and your sleeping bag is, is like is soaked through. You know what I mean? Like there's all kinds of weird little things like that that innocently happen that uh, that fire is pretty important to dry your stuff off. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I guess the sled also would have, like if you're a hike-in area where you can't really get a vehicle in, if you did have an injured camper, you, you could drag them out with it. I mean, that's... I, I'm yeah, just looking for sure. some, There's definitely some advantages to winter camping. No mosquitoes. Uh, easy, yeah, um, certain things are easier to do. Yeah, it's you know what it's actually uh, it's it's really nice. Like when you go out there and your body acclimates to the cold, um, you know we'll sit around a fire, we'll build a fire, we'll sit around it just with our base layer tops on, keeping warm. We'll be hanging around outside and just uh, doing our thing. And you know it's uh, it's just an ex- it's just a different experience altogether. You're you're traipsing in through the snow with snowshoes on. Most people don't even have snowshoes. Like most people couldn't even get to where you are, right? And the scenery is so beautiful and it's so different. And uh, there's so much opportunity for like other fun things to do. Like, for example, on the one trip, we, we went to uh, tobogganing down a hill. We brought garbage bags or else took tarps and we uh, we slid down some hills. You know, there's all kinds of fun stuff like uh, to do in the winter as far as like going out and doing winter camping. So, but you are right, there's no, there's no, uh, no bugs less predators to worry about. Um, but, you know, there's a whole bunch of other host of things you have to be concerned about that are life-threatening, like avalanche risk, you know, falling through ice, you know, uh, getting caught in storms. Getting lost in the winter is a lot more serious, you know, for having issues with exposure. Um, even little things like in, you take for granted, like in the summer when you sweat, you can dry off. But in the winter, it takes a lot longer to dry off if you start sweating. So it's always best if you can try not to sweat. But you know what? Invariably, if you're carrying a 50-pound pack on your back, you're going to probably sweat a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, obviously clothing is going to have to be different. So um, there's all different thoughts on cold clothing, you know, cold weather clothing, the best stuff. Some is mythology. Some of it's good, solid stuff. When, yep. what, what advice do you have for people as far as what clothing to take on a trip in, in you know, real winter camping? Well, okay, so I hang out with a lot of guys who are gear geeks, right? They work at outdoor stores, and they can tell me the difference between three different kinds of Gore-Tex and Gore-Tex uh, uh, knockoffs, right? Yeah. But for me, for me, what I what, what I have uh, gleaned from my experience is that everybody's different. So, say for myself, I'm a I'm a bigger guy, and so I run pretty warm, right? And so I'm going to wear less clothing 
than the person next to me. And I might even have less layers. And so what, what I recommend, I have a whole list of things I could talk about with clothes, but to start, what I'd recommend with is, is uh, going out and taking extra clothes with you. Like just start out with what you already have in your closet, right? Go out, do some day, some day excursions in the winter. You know, go snowshoeing or go for, go for a hike or whatever somewhere where you don't need snowshoes and, uh, and see what you actually need. So start adding layers, subtracting layers, see what, see what, uh, you need to wear to stay, to stay dry and cool, um, when you're just going on a hike. Like for me, I wear the exact same thing every time because I've, I've figured this out for me and it's quite different from what my, my friends wear, you know? So I, I really like to start with, knowing yourself, knowing your body, and experimenting with what you already have before you start going to outdoor stores and buying expensive Gore-Tex jackets and all this expensive stuff, right? So for me, for example, what I wear is uh, I'll wear like a merino wool base layer, a uh, long sleeve top and bottom, and my wool socks. And then I'll have uh, some winter hiking boots that would look very similar to summer hiking boots, but they're insulated and they have good ankle support, good grip, stuff like that. And they'll have like a soft, a soft outer surface to them so that at night when I'm sleeping in a tent, I leave them outside, I open them right up nice and wide because they're going to freeze at night and I can get my feet back into them in the morning. So, and then like for my pants, I would have like a soft shell pant that has like a lining to it so it's warm but still breathable. And water resistant, but not necessarily waterproof. Uh, and then on my legs, I might, if it's a little bit wet, I'll, I might throw on some gaiters to keep my, my legs dry, you know, cover my boots up and keep it uh, nice and dry. And, um, for, uh, for my upper body, I would mainly, I'm outdoors and I'm wearing my, uh, my merino wool base layer. Like it'll be minus 20 degrees Celsius, which is pretty cold. And I'll be just merino wool base layer top and my everything on my bottom that I just discussed and I'll be super happy. Um, and then on top of that, I'd have maybe like a, uh, some sort of synthetic light sweater and then, uh, a more of a hard shell Gore-Tex jacket just in case there's wind or rain and stuff like that, that I put on the, on my outer, uh, uh, outermost layer. And then I'll, in my pack, I'll always keep like a medium fleece in case I get kind of cold and need something a little bit more breathable. Um, and then for the rest of the time, I just have my, uh, I like a micro tube that I wear most of the time and some thin soft shell gloves. And I also will always take with me uh, a little bit of a warmer wool tube and uh, warmer gloves to go with it. But all that stuff I just mentioned, which is not really that much stuff, and most of it's on my body most of the time except for the fleece and the hard shell jacket, um, I wear the exact same thing every time, Jack. Exact same thing. So it's like the guy next to me might have like a little bit different layer setup with fancier gear, but... I know for me, with like with my girth and how hot I run, I know this is what works for me. So that's why I say like get out there, get out into the wilderness, do some winter trips, and experiment, and just take extra clothes. And you know, add a subtract. You think that maybe you need something that's a little white, a little bit uh, maybe long sleeve and a little more breathable. Go to the store and maybe pick up that one piece. But I don't really, I don't really like to to say well go to REI and and get exactly what these guys say because they don't know what your body is like. They don't know how hot you run. They don't know if you get cold really easily. Maybe you need an extra layer that you're going to wear all the time, right? So that's that's just my take on the whole clothing thing. It's definitely 
I think it's it's not something that someone can tell you. I think you need to go out and experiment and find what's right for you, for sure. I like that answer because there's a lot of people that say stupid crap like wool insulates even when it's wet and yeah, it's all how much and for how long and 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 then there's people that are kind of elitist with like this is the brand and and again you know people all have individual budgets and individual bodies and individual personalities. I know people that you know 30 degrees they can walk around in a t-shirt and they're legitimately not cold. Uh, yeah. And then I know people that are freezing yeah. at 45 degrees with the sun on them. Yeah. So it's, yeah, so it is very unique, and I think that there's some seas. I mean, I'm I don't think I'm as cold tolerant today as I was when I lived in Pennsylvania. I think where you live has a lot to do with it too. Oh, of course, yeah, for sure. Like even when you, I did some. I went to Burning Man one year, and they reset my internal thermostat. <laughs> After that, it's cold for it's cold for nine months because I was reset for living in the desert for a week. Yeah, um, yeah. So so definitely, I I don't want to like. All the stuff I'll talk about today, I'm not going to mention any brands because I don't uh, I don't believe in you know like kind of brand snobbery and I think you just have to go out and get what you can afford and do the best you can do and you know what if you have less a smaller budget you're going to have bulkier heavier gear and you know what that's okay that's how you start out get a bigger backpack and you just deal with it right yep yeah definitely I I completely agree what about um what about other gear? So, I mean, you know, clothing is, is key, obviously, but yeah. is there some other key equipment, specifically winter trips? I mean, I'm going to carry a knife. I'm going to go, right? But is there some yeah. something specific to winter camping? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the first thing I would talk about is your backpack. So you're going to use the same backpack you use for the winter as the summer. However, um, you're going to uh, want to make sure that if you're only doing a, a day trip, like say an overnight winter trip, because that's what people are using to start with, right? So that's where I'm going to focus mostly because, you know, if your listeners are saying, I want to get into doing this, this winter backpacking and things like that, start with the one day trip overnight, keep it safe, keep it like close to home, nothing too crazy, right? So for a, for a uh, overnight trip, uh, say that you have like a 40 liter to a 60 liter backpack, uh, depending on how bulky and heavy your gear is, right? Now, Sometimes it's really uh, tempting to take your ultralight little tiny backpack because you know you can fit everything in it, right? The problem is, is that those little ultralight backpacks aren't rated for heavy winter gear because even though maybe you can fit it in at the volume, a lot of times you're going to have heavier stuff, right? So what I what I recommend is to, to make sure that if you're going to use the backpack you select to take with you on winter trips should be a little bit beefier and more comfortable with heavier weight. So I'd go with a bulkier, larger pack than a smaller ultralight pack um, for for several reasons. Like, for example, a, um, a lighter pack will have lighter straps that will dig into more to put too much weight in them. And also, a lot of them will be oriented more, uh, they'll be narrower and taller, which makes your, um, which could make your uh, center of gravity a little bit uh, less desirable, especially when you're balancing yourself on skis or snowshoes and you have poles. It sometimes sink into the ground. It's easy to fall over, right? Um, the other thing with this, with the backpacks, is um, uh, when you typically do a winter trip, if I go out on the trail and I see another group, I can tell who knows what they're doing and who doesn't know what they're doing. And I can tell by looking at their backpacks. And the guys who know what they're doing have backpacks that have nothing on the outside, except for maybe a water bottle. The guys who I can tell don't know what they're doing, their backpacks have 
shovel strapped to the outside. They have all kinds of stuff, like sleeping bags strapped to the outside, all kinds of things. And so definitely you want to have a pack where you can put everything inside your pack because it's important that if, say, if you were to get caught in an avalanche or have an issue, you want to have all that stuff securely stored inside your pack because you're at a high risk of having issues because of exposure to climate, right? Um, so that, that would be the, the biggest thing is you're dealing with heavier gear and you want to have everything inside your pack. So I recommend going to bigger packs rather than, uh, rather than smaller packs. And to go with that to give people an idea of like what kind of weight they keep dealing with is I kind of broke it down to three groups, like intermediate or sorry, rookie, intermediate and expert. So rookie, like when I started, my pack was like 60 pounds. So I'm hiking around and backpacking with a 60-pound pack, which is pretty heavy, right? And that's because I had inexpensive, bulky gear, didn't know what I was doing, packed way too much of everything, right? A person who's more intermediate is going to be hitting between 40 and 50 pounds, and a person who's more expert is going to be hitting 20 pounds to 40 pounds. So as you get a little bit more knowledgeable, you're going to probably take less stuff. You're going to have more compact gear, and you're going to just kind of have a better idea of what you really need, right? Um, some of the other gear, there's like a, there's actually a lot of gear that's really important for uh, for winter camping. So, for example, a four season tent. Four season tent is what the joke is: is that a four season tent is a one season tent. So you only usually use it in the winter because it's heavy duty, right? So a four season tent will have uh, all the mesh in the tent will be zippered up. It'll have you can open it up, but it it also will usually stay zippered, so that there's no air infiltration going through the, the tent. Um, as well, it'll have more poles, and the poles will be stronger to withstand like heavier wind loads, heavier snow loads, and things like that. The materials on the tent will also be more heavy duty uh, because they'll use them in like mountaineering and stuff like that, right? So you want to uh, make sure with your tent in the winter that you need to have a tent that's spacious enough inside that you're not going to be touching the walls too much when you're sleeping in your bag, because you can get condensation on the wall of the tent that'll soak through your bag and will make you cold, and your bag will take a while to dry out. So that's something that actually happened to me once on a shoulder season trip where it was kind of fall to winter, and it was a bad experience. Um, so the difference as far as with a three-season tent, if you were to use a three-season tent, which is just like your standard kind of backpacking tent. So when I talk about tents, I'm usually talking about like three to four pounds backpacking tents. Um, you're going to want to make sure that you mitigate uh, wind blowing through it. So you're going to want to maybe pile up snow around it and things like that because uh, the wind is going to get you as far as cooling you right down. Um, not having the wind go through your tent is going to capture the body heat and the breath of everybody within the tent and it's going to warm up the tent. If you're winter camping and you're sitting in your tent and it's a four season tent, you are warm because as long as you're sitting on something warm, you're going to be warm. You're going to be sitting in your underwear in a tent and it's like minus 20 outside, minus 20 Celsius. Um, so like for, for example, like I once got stuck camping on the edge of a lake and it was a minus 30 degree Celsius blizzard with like 60, 70 mile per hour winds. And, um, the, uh, like all night, the four season tent was pounded with wind and snow. And, you know, we were just stuck. We were doing an overnight trip. It was only three or four kilometers and we got stuck on the side of a lake, uh, cause we're going in in the evening. And we rode it out at night, and it was fine. Everybody was, was warm and happy. But to be honest, a three-season tent, it would have been cold, and it probably would have felt. There was enough wind load on there 
that uh, you need a serious tent to uh, to go and uh, um, to protect you from the elements. Um, as far as sleeping bags, um, I usually travel with a minus 20 degrees Celsius sleeping bag. Um, and synthetic or down, people use both. Um, the down bags are a little bit better to, to balance the temperature because the air can move through the down and uh, and distribute itself a little bit more evenly. Um, but you can't get it wet. And so that's where you have to store your, your down bag in a, in a dry sack that compresses. Um, synthetic, though, like people are really going with synthetic these days because they're awesome for, for protecting from wind. The down bags, the wind blows right through them, and they're better for, for dealing with water. And so people really like them for shoulder season trips, especially when there's like they're not sure what they're going to get for weather, if it could get wet. Um, the thing about bags, everybody always says, oh, well, this one compresses more than that one or whatever. It really comes down to the price. You know, if you pay $500 for a bag, it's going to be compressed pretty small and be amazing how small they get. So I, I kind of think the, the bags that people look at, it's the uh, size to weight uh, ratio is more relative to cost in a lot of, a lot of times. You just get the warmest bag you can that's around minus 20 that uh, is properly sized for your body size. Otherwise, it won't give you the proper protection from, from the elements. And uh, get the best one you can that's as small and, and light as possible. Um, but the, the biggest secret, Jack, is the insulated mat that you sleep on. You could sleep with a, a, way, a way warmer, or sorry, a way um, less warm sleeping bag. But if you have an insulated mat that you're sleeping on in the tent, that's the secret to staying warm for winter camping. It's the number one secret. Because the ground becomes a major heat sink. It just pulls the heat out of your body otherwise. The air in the tent, it, uh, it, it warms up because of your body heat, right? But the floor is still sucking all that heat out of there. And so they have these insulated mats that are they're inflatable, and they have an uh, integrated pump. So it's like an integrated hand pump. Sometimes they have an external pump that you use that's, that's uh, lightweight and small that comes with it. But you, you pump them up with these pumps. And they have actual uh, down inside, and they'll have like an R value of like R7 or something like that. It's pretty impressive, like R value, right? And they're actually quite thick. Like when you inflate them, they get quite quite uh, deep, like probably three inches, three inches deep at least, maybe three and a half. And um, that is the number one secret: staying warm. And I bought two of them because I wanted to make sure that if I took anybody winter camping, they would. I knew that if I brought, made sure they had one of those mats as well that they will always come back, and they always come back because I always make sure I have an extra winter mat for them, and it keeps them really warm in the tent, and that's a secret to winter camping. So if you can be comfortable in the tent and not be cold, you will have an awesome time. But if you're cold and miserable, nobody wants If I was cold and miserable winter camping, I would never go winter camping. But I'm always comfortable, and I'm always warm, and I'm always dry. Um, the thing about the, the secret, though, that you have to watch out for with winter mats and even using other mats in the winter, is that when you blow into a winter mat, uh, you don't blow into a winter mat with your breath because you have moisture in your breath that goes in there and next to the R volume next to the mat. And even for other mats that you blow up, you're blowing moisture into that mat in the winter and it's going to mitigate the thermal value of any of those other inflatable mats as well, right? So you definitely want to get one with a pump where you pump it by hand so that you don't, you don't uh, expel uh, humid breath inside the mat and like the uh, the mat or the R value. Um, but yeah, number one thing, if I could have one awesome piece of gear, that would be what I would spend the money on. 
um, a lot of people who are left first starting out, they use those disposable chemical hand warmers and foot warmers. I never, ever have used those before, but lots of people take them when they first start out as a little kind of safety uh, because they feel like no matter what, they can always warm themselves up with those. But even better than that, what the more experienced guys do is they take several Nalgene bottles and we fill them with hot water. And so if you have any problems, you just take both your Nalgene bottles, fill them with hot water, throw them in your sleeping bag, and uh, you, uh, or you or you hold them in your hands. We all sit around the fire and these guys were freezing because their hands were cold. It was a shoulder season trip. And they, uh, there's several people who are cold. They, we didn't really expect they were going to get such cold weather, right? And so what, what I did is I filled up my Nalgene bottles with hot water and I threw them to them. And, you know, now they're holding them around the fire and they're warm because their hands aren't cold. And, you know, and you throw them into your sleeping bag and it keeps you warm most of the night, you know. And as long as you eat a lot of calories before you go to bed, right before you go to bed, eat a ton of calories between that and the Nalgene bottle, you can... Uh, you can stay pretty comfortable even if you have all the wrong gear because you've got something that's going to keep you warm. You've got calories that are generating a massive amount of body heat. And as long as you can keep yourself away from the wind, you could probably stay fairly comfortable. So Nalgene bottles are must, and they have to be Nalgene brand bottles. You can't get, like, some sort of bottle with a spigot on it or any kind of junky bottle because you cannot have any chance of water leaking on these bottles because it's, like... Nalgene bottles, I've never heard of anybody having an Nalgene bottle fail. And I've been in the situation where I've had other water bottles just laying around in the tent that have failed and got everything wet. So that's, I can't stress that enough. Like, I don't trust anything but Nalgene bottles. Really? Um, yeah. Like, I... So you don't like the stainless steel ones? Well, the stainless steel ones, I think if you put the hot water in, like the sick bottles, I have those as well. Um, yeah. I think that... The thing about the Nalgene bottles is this, is that, okay, so when I travel with the Nalgene bottle, I put one in my pack on the outside, and I put one inside the pack so it won't freeze shut. Mm-hmm. The one on the outside usually doesn't freeze shut. And if it starts to, I just let crack it open, right? Yeah. The SIG bottles, they're also awesome bottles. I think that when you heat them up, you get a lot more scorching hotness through the metal because it conducts the, the heat really quickly. Um, so it would you have higher risk of burning. And... Um, I don't know. I don't know that they're rated to have hot liquids uh, in them and not leak. Because think about like Diet. the expansion and contraction of metal versus plastic, right? See, I like them because you can cook in them. But I, I see your point. I guess you can yeah. always cook in your canteen cup or something like that. But yeah, for sure. So, so I'm not. I'm just saying, in my experience, what doesn't fail at all, 100 percent of the time, Nalgene bottles. If a person Diet. wants to, to go and try something else and they're confident they've tested that out, you know, maybe you heat up, put some hot water in your sick bottle, see if it leaks, you know, and then uh, make your decision, right? But the nice thing about gene bottle is that it's all the same material, so it's consistent expansion and contraction. It's got a really nice big uh, thread on it, so it's, in my opinion, it's easier to get open in the winter when stuff is freezing. And so uh, that's just the one that I know, it just it always works. And, you know, you get them without the BPA or whatever, they've got the, the better plastic these days, so... Um, what I do avoid, like the plague those camelbacks in the winter. Um, the um, uh, camelbacks, they seem to always freeze up. I've, I bought the insulated uh, covers for the tube, and uh, it seems to always kind of freeze up on me. So I kind of avoid camelbacks as much as I can, and uh, I, uh, I just make sure that uh, I use those in the in summer and I, and I don't use them in the winter. 
Um, some people, what they do is they'll blow back into the into the bladder and purge the water back into the bladder. And so that's what uh, some guys do. And, you know, and that's the prerogative. It's like I'm not, I don't uh, subscribe to, to uh, everything in a really rigid fashion. It's just what I've found works for me, right? Um, sure. Yeah, as far as uh, hiking poles, um, you're always going to want to have some uh, some really sturdy hiking poles. And you're going to want to make sure you have winter baskets on them because otherwise you're just going to stab right through the snow, right to the ground. And you know, mm. the snow could be four to six feet deep, so you're going to just fall over, right? So you're going to want to get hiking poles uh, that have a uh, clasp-type uh, locking mechanism because most hiking poles, they expand and they um, uh, they expand and contract their length, right? And you're going to want to make sure that um, when you're on a winter excursion, you have winter baskets, and you never, ever, ever retract your poles in the winter when you're on a trip because they freeze shut. Oh. So that's a really big thing that people do when they first start out is they'll, they'll get to camp, they'll retract them, and they'll get up in the morning and they can't get them open again. And they're really valuable for stabilizing yourself, for carrying extra weight, and just, uh, they're, they're just invaluable. I almost never hike without them. And, you know, you can really tell when you only have one of them and you have a heavy pack is that your one knee will get really sore because the other one has so much more support. So definitely hiking poles, uh, that are sturdy, uh, are definitely, definitely a must for summer and for winter. Um, but yeah, the, some of the, uh, hiking poles, the reason why I, I uh, say, uh, about the clasp mechanism is that some of the hiking poles you, you do, uh, the rotating little nut that you, you, uh, that you tighten and loosen. And, um, they, uh, sometimes they're more likely to retract unexpectedly. So most of the people like the ones with the clasps. Um, one of the biggest things that I, that I take with me everywhere is duct tape. And I put it on all my water bottles. I put it on my hiking poles. I put it on my cross country ski poles. I put it on everything around. So I make sure I always have duct tape with me. And, I, it's probably the number one thing I use for first aid, and it's the number one thing I use for repairing things, and uh, it's uh, it's invaluable. And I only use like a really good brand name duct tape because the better brand names have a better glue that will stick to skin even though you're sweating. So, for example, like um, for blister care, the number one thing I use for blister care, and that's the number one thing that we use on hikes to to provide first aid, is I use. Uh, moleskin, which you can, uh, like Dr. Scholl's moleskin, that you can get at like any drugstore. And I take my uh, little EMT scissors and I cut it a little square, put it on the blister, and then I cover it with a couple layers of duct tape overlapping the duct tape. And I'll tell you, Jack, you can have the most cut-up blistered feet and you can walk all day long if you can, if you can uh, have a combination of moleskin and duct tape. I was um, supposed to do this hike in uh, uh, Vancouver Island called the West Coast Trail. And the day before I destroyed my feet, I had to run to Mech, which is like REI in Canada. And uh, I was wearing sandals. And so what happened, some of my gear got destroyed in the plane ride. And so I had to run there in 10 minutes uh, before it closed because we were leaving on the bus the next morning. And so I uh, ended up getting about 10 cuts on my feet and blisters from these sandals because you know, I was running sandals. And I'll tell you, I, uh, I took the moleskin and I took the duct tape and I wrapped my feet up. The entire time I was on this hike, which is about 75 kilometers over four days, we did it in, uh, with like pretty ex- like ladders and a lot of like pretty crazy terrain. And um, I was fine. And it was all duct tape, mostly. 
Those are two things I always have with me at all times. Summer, winter, all the time. Duct tape, like, like if you have a, say, for example, my last trip, a good example for duct tape. I had a, uh, we're using uh, Nordic touring skis, and my skis had uh, skins. And skins are basically a, a uh, covering that you put on the bottom of the, uh, excuse me, the bottom of the skis. It has a directional fiber to it that, uh, where you can basically get traction moving forward in a walking motion with skis on. Say if you're going uphill. And the clip to hold it on the back of the ski broke off and disappeared into the snow. So I've got a skin, which is an integral part of my equipment, that now is only attached on the front of my ski and it's flapping all over the place, and I can't get any traction. So I took my duct tape and I wrapped it up, and I kept my skin in place. If I didn't have the duct tape, I would have been a, a really hurting unit for sure on that trip. Um, so the other thing that I, I take a lot is I uh, bring compression dry sacks. And so these are sacks that... Uh, are waterproof, and they also compress whatever's in them down to a smaller kind of egg-shaped, egg-shaped package. Um, it's really easy to get caught up in the idea that uh, if uh, if it works good for one or two things, I should use it for everything, that I should go and I should um, compress everything. The problem is then you get a pack that's full of egg-shaped packages, and it's not a very good way to pack. So definitely for, for uh, your tent and your sleeping bag, Two things you want to stay stay pretty dry. You put both those things in compression dry sacks so they stay really safe. The rest of the stuff you just put them in stuff sacks that don't compress and jam them in your pack so that you have a, uh, a more natural uh, uh, way of filling up the pack with, instead of filling up a bunch of egg-shaped compressed packages. Um, the one thing to, to go with that though is that um, I always make sure I have a different color sack um, that is uh, you know a nice heavy-duty sack that can be hung off a bear hang or whatever that maybe you can attach a, a carabiner or something to. And I make sure it's a different color, and it always holds the food and garbage. And I can't stress it enough. I'm going to stress it to people all the time. Don't put food in your pockets. Don't, like, don't wipe your dirty food hands on your clothes. Don't bring food into the tent. Don't, uh, don't use um, uh, drink crystals in your Nalgene bottle and take the Nalgene bottle into your tent. And uh, don't put your tent into your food bag. And we actually had, had to tell people that on one trip we were on. People were from a different country where there's no large predators. And so they thought nothing of using the the uh, tent bag to store the garbage and put it up the bearing. And then put the tent back in it the next day. So things like that happen all the time. And you think that you you think that people are getting common sense, but there's always invariably going to be these little things where you really have to drill it into people as far as... Uh, uh, being having discipline with uh, with, with the, what goes into each type of sack and uh, not contaminating things that are like your tent, your sleeping bag, your clothes with food because you don't want to smell like food when a bear comes through your through your camp, right, and starts uh, dragging you out of your tent. Yeah, um, and the whole hibernation thing is not a hundred percent all the time. I mean, there's there's bears about for much of the winter. Well. Winter, winter camping includes shoulder season. And so you have a shoulder season where they're just about to go into hibernation and where they're probably, probably less dangerous. But then you also have the shoulder season in the spring where they're coming out of hibernation and they're hungry. You know, so you have both extremes. You have the spring and the fall, uh, trips where you could have potential problems, right? So, uh, one of the other things that's, that's a really, uh, good thing to know for people who are thinking about getting into this, is that you never use compressed fuel in the winter. 
uh, those compressed fuel canisters that you, you get with like the white gas or whatever, the camping fuel, um, they, uh, um, they, they lose their pressure in the cold and they stop working. And they also freeze up really easily. So we only use liquid gas stoves that you, where you, uh, compress it yourself using a pump. Um, and that, I can't stress that enough because there's nothing worse than getting out there and you can't heat up water, right? Or your stove's not working. And then you've probably got a different type of fuel from someone else. So then everybody's sharing one stove and you're starting around out of fuel because there's not enough fuel to supply for everybody. So definitely camp stoves with liquid fuel where you compress it yourself. And then also you can keep a closer eye on how much fuel you actually have left as well, right? Um, to go with that, a lot of those will have a control at the burner and they'll also have a control at the actual tank, right? So you always want to turn off at the tank first instead of at the burner. Otherwise, you're going to get condensation or fuel buildup in the uh, uh, in the uh, the line that goes from the tank to the burner, and you could have it freeze up in the morning when you try to start up again. So you always want to kind of shut off the gas at the tank, let it burn up whatever's left in the in the line, and hopefully it'll suck out all that water vapor and all of the uh, stuff in that line. So we've had some trips where we've gone out and uh, I've seen three or four guys with pretty good stoves sitting there struggling for half an hour to get them started in the morning because they've just got a little bit of conversation line because they didn't turn them off in the proper sequence. Um, one of the other things that we always take on a winter trip is we always take a sturdy, collapsible avalanche shovel. And don't ever buy a cheap shovel because it's like, it's a very integral piece of equipment. And, you know, I'm not going to get too much into, like, into avalanche stuff because that's something that people need to be properly trained in. But um, it saves lives. And you use it all the time for, for digging out your camp, like fire pits in your camp, or for all kinds of stuff. You know, like a shovel is a essential piece of equipment, and you make sure you don't buy a cheap shovel that looks like it's all made out of plastic, because when that handle breaks off, it's going to be far less useful for you to use. Um, I already talked about uh, gators. Um, some of the other stuff, like general camping stuff, like you'll probably always have a compass and a map with you. Uh, sunglasses are really important in the winter because you get so much glare off the snow. Same thing with suntan lotion. It's probably more important when you're in the winter because you're just getting bombarded by um, by, the, by the reflection off the snow, right? Um, some of the tricks that uh, uh, that uh, that I uh, that I do is uh, I make sure that I um, that I, I bring some food that doesn't need to be cooked cooked for like either eating before bed or for getting up in the morning. Because when you get up in the morning and you're cold and you've got four people who can't get this stove started, you're going to be really cold. And if you can eat some calories before bed and when you wake up, you're going to be warm. And so calories equal body heat. And that's what everybody has to remember is that you, I can't stress enough, calories equal body heat. If you're, if you're cold, eat something. And always bring something you can eat that doesn't freeze. Um, to go with that, um, we also... Uh, it's also really important, and people people forget. They think that because they're um, out um, in the winter and it's cold, they think that they don't need as much water. And what you learn really quickly is that you need to be hydrated for your body to regulate your body heat, no matter if it's hot or cold. And so if you don't drink enough and uh, you're having problems, if you don't drink enough, you're going to have problems regulating your body temperature, and you're going to get cold, and you're going to be more at risk for hypothermia. So it's super important, I can't stress enough, that people stay hydrated even in the winter 
because it's you think that because it's cold you don't need to drink as much, but you really do. So that's pretty much all the gear that uh, I could kind of think of. It's not not the the end all be all list of gear, but those are the major things. And if I had pretty much all that stuff uh, going on a trip, that's basically the the key things I pack when I'm on a trip. Besides like generic camping stuff like first aid kits and headlamps and knives and things like that, right? Stuff you would take um, on any camping trip. Yeah. 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 yeah just one last thing is is that uh, lighters are very unreliable at high altitudes, and <laughs> uh, I've seen some hundred dollar lighters that uh, are the best camping lighters you can get. And when you go up uh, near, the, near like, uh, the top of these mountains, they do not work. So just like with the compressed fuel canisters, um, those don't work very good at high altitudes as well. So always keep that in mind if you're going to be somewhere where there's high altitude, even in the summer, that your, your lighters, anything with compressed, compressed uh, gases in them, they don't work very good at high altitudes or in the cold. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. What um, we talked a lot about gear. What about you know methods of travel? I guess mostly you you do snowshoeing and do you skiing or you ever jump on a snowmobile or anything like that. I mean, well, okay, so we're uh, for for my background, like I do, I snowboard. So I wish I skied downhill skied. Like oh, I just wish I did because it's such a good way of getting around. Um, I snowshoe, and so sometimes in the backcountry I'll use a split board, which is a snowboard that splits in two and kind of splits into into uh, sort of into like a cross-country type ski. Um, I've used that, and I didn't really like to use that all that much. Um, I've used uh, I use snowshoes for anything where we're going through trees, uh, where we have a heavy pack. We're going through trees and maybe some more difficult terrain. Um, they're they're very stable. If you if you have to bushwhack, they're really awesome to bushwhack in, and uh, uh, you can get extensions for them uh, so they can carry more weight. Like for me, I'm a big guy and I carry a heavy pack, and so I need like I had to go get the biggest snowshoes I could find that held the most weight, and so that's when you start either getting really big snowshoes or ones that are really long, or ones that have extensions that you clip on, and so with as far as snowshoes, you want to look for risers. So some of them have risers, which are these little clips that come up under your heel, so that when you're going uphill, your feet always stay level. And uh, it's easier on your calf muscles. It's way easier to go up and down these, well, to go up the hills. Um, as well, you want to make sure, for sure, that they have crampons on the bottom, so they have spikes on the bottom. Because those old snowshoes that your grandpa used to have that were made out of wood with uh, resin or whatever ancient material they used to create those things, um, they're horrible for going up and down hills. Like, you... It's crazy. Like, we had a guy who bought a pair of those on a trip, and he doubled the length of our trip in. Um, so so it's important to make sure they have crampons. Um, the other thing is, Jack, I, I took a group of uh, beginner snowshoers out just for a, a hike. And then, you know what I noticed is that they all rented their gears. They'd never used these snowshoes before. And a lot of the women had a lot of trouble um, with the buckle systems where it needed a significant amount of strength, actually, to tighten them up. Like you're having to really refund some of these straps, stretch them, put the hole through a peg, and or put it through some complex buckle system. So I would really recommend, like if you're thinking about snowshoes, um, go to the store and see if you can get them on yourself. And because uh, I even had trouble getting them on, let alone these gals that I was helping out. I'd help like five of them get their stuff on. And so make sure you can get them um, on and off yourself, and that you can put them on tight enough. Because just because you can put them on uh, loose, 
doesn't mean that it's tight enough to, to be to function out there walking around. Um, so that's super, super important that you're really comfortable with the buckles. Um, as well, um, a funny thing is anybody who kind of walks duck-footed is going to have problems with snowshoes. If you walk with your heels closer together than your toes uh, in a significant amount, and I've had a couple people on trips, and they just do nothing but trip. So you should really, uh, especially if you walk with that, you should definitely try a couple pairs on. Maybe go with one that's wider and not as long because I've seen a lot of people have problems with that whenever they have, uh, they're kind of duck-footed. And it's, I've probably seen it about four or five times uh, with uh, different people uh, having issues with that. So it's a funny little thing that you would never think of until you're falling all over the place and you have to think actively to keep your feet straight so you don't trip, right? Um, so, yeah, snowshoes are my, I love snowshoes, and but they're slow, right? So the second mode of transport that I use the most besides snowshoes is uh, Nordic Touring Skis. And uh, Nordic Touring Skis are light cross-country skis, but they're a little bit wider, and they have metal edges on both sides. And um, those are, are meant for for uh, carrying more weight, uh, for going up hills, and they're meant for uh, uh, doing some bushwhacking where you're breaking trail, and then you have, you have more ankle support because they're wider, so your foot is pushing down on a wider base. If you were to take a cross-country ski, which is quite narrow, and try and bushwhack with those on, your ankle twists because you've got this really narrow stick that you're standing on, and you're kind of standing down onto like an even snowpack under there, and you, it's really easy to twist your ankle. So part of the reason why they're so great is because they're a little bit wider, and so there's more stability when you're bushwhacking. Um, the bottom of them will either have uh, skins, which I talked about a moment ago, where it's like a directional fiber that gives you traction going up and down hills, okay? Or, or else some of them have scales, and they have these scales built into the bottom that seem to work pretty good. And uh, so you can kind of just walk up the hill. The scales are directional, so they're pointed in a certain direction towards the back. And you can use those to go up and down the hill, so you don't have to stop and put on and off skins all the time, so you're, so you're a little bit more fast. However, they do slow you down going forwards, so you'll you'll get less less of a downhill speed, but which sometimes is actually good. Um, and you'll get, but you'll have the you won't have to deal with the hassle of taking skins on and off. Um, Nordic touring skis are pretty awesome because they have a soft shell boot, like a cross country ski. Um, so they're really comfortable to wear. You can wear them with a really thin kind of ski sock. You wouldn't really wear them with a really thick wool sock because they're usually have like a foam boot, which is pretty warm. But um, the problem is, is if you have to bushwhack, it's horrible. If you have to bushwhack through trees, I hate bushwhacking through trees with those things on. And uh, also, if you have a really heavy pack, um, imagine how much stress you're putting on a little binding that just attaches to this uh, ski with uh, by the toe, by the toe only. So um, they have a high instance, in my experience, of especially with rental products because I'm usually renting these. Um, with the binding starting to break down a little bit because you're putting so much pressure on it, going downhill, turning and stuff like that, snow plowing if you're trying to snow, slow down because you're not very good skiing yet. And uh, it puts a lot of stress on them. And there's a, I think there's one of the highest uh, rates of failure for a piece of equipment I've used for um, for doing winter trips. The number one thing that's failed on me the most is Nordic touring skis. Uh, through the bindings, the skins, losing a clip for the skins, um, just things like that, and starting to fall apart. Just there's a lot of stress you put on them. And so 
it's it's something that if you really you really want to inspect the gear when you get it, make sure it's in really good shape, and uh, and just make sure that uh, you're careful with it because it could could break on you. There's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of stress put on it. Um, as well, the one thing I don't really like about it um, because I've always come back out of the out of the bush with them. You know, it might be taped up with duct tape or whatever, but you can get so much speed going if you're not comfortable downhill skiing. Um, there's a high chance of injury going downhill because you can get up a lot of speed really quickly. And if you're not confident with them to control your speed or steer or stop and things like that, and you have a, put that on, add to it, you have like a 40 pound, 50 pound pack on your back, which means you're unstable. Um, it really adds up to a high chance of, of injury compared to snowshoes. So, but you know what? I still go on lots of trips with the skis. And I get better and better every time I go out. And I've never been injured. I've just had problems with the stuff breaking down. But you know what? I'm a big guy. And so I put a lot of pressure on this gear, right? So it's just something to be aware of and to treat that gear with respect. Because if one of your skis breaks, you're going to be having a hard time getting back out, even on a even on a path. Um, so, yeah, definitely my number one is snowshoes. Number two is Nordic terrain skis. Um, we tend to use Nordic terrain skis a lot more when we're going to a hut because huts usually have nice trails going to them, and the snowshoe uh, trips were usually bushwhacking and uh, trying to find summer trails and things like that. So those are the two the two main ones. We get into AT touring skis where they're downhill hard boots, but that's getting a little bit more into, like, guys who are getting into some pretty risky spots up in the mountains in the winter, lots of specialized training. Cool. We, don't um, we don't use snowmobiles or anything like that at all where we go. Because we're always going to parks and places like that, and it's not allowed there. And it kind of takes away from the purity of what we're doing. Like, we're always self-propelled and walking in places that other people can't get to. In the interest of keeping people alive and healthy and happy, what are some common mistakes that you or others have made on some trips? Oh, man, there's so many. It's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Like, And it's, it's awesome when you have a bad experience and you walk away from it because it sure tunes you in for next time that you go out, right? Like, I actually went on a trip once and I forgot a toque. Like, I had a toque, and I think I took it off in the car or something, you know, like you scrape it off your car, and you took it off when you got inside because you're hot, and it's part of your essential gear, and I left part of my essential gear in the car somewhere. Um, but, you know, you have other pieces of equipment that are kind of backups, you have hoods and things, but still, it's like, just be careful not to forget stuff in the car. Um, don't wreck your feet before a trip. That's like, that was my biggest biggest thing and what I got out of it though what I learned is I became an expert at uh, at mending uh, and uh, nursing uh, blisters and cuts and now as long as I have duct tape and moleskin I don't even care if I get a blister because I can take care of it in five minutes and I can walk all day on that um, we actually uh, you have to make sure you have the proper safety equipment like um, uh, if it says it, uh, that it's a dangerous trip then you should be wearing a helmet say like uh, because there's falling rocks and stuff make sure you have a helmet. When we were on a trip where they said you have to have a helmet, we all had helmets. And one lady was uh, standing on a boulder and lost her footing and fell and smashed her head into another boulder. And she was uh, she got a concussion, and she was fine. We took some of her gear and we got her out of there. She could still walk under her own power out of there. But if she didn't have her helmet on, I don't know what we would have done. We would have been in a real a real, uh, real problem. We would have had to deal with someone who was incapacitated, right? Um be careful in shoulder seasons because shoulder season can look like like summer or winter. It depends on the mountain range you're in, and it can turn fast. 
So just be uh, be careful. Make sure you have a couple mounting bottles as a backup, so that if it gets uh, gets uh, if it ends up being uh, snowy or cold, you can fill up your mounting bottles, things like that. Because invariably, it's going to happen to everybody that you're out there, and the weather, uh, just like some freak weather comes up, and all of a sudden it's way colder, or uh, than than you expect or prepared for, right? Um, the more thing that happens to me these days is uh, I get uh, I lose a lot of chest straps on some of my um, backpacks, and they just kind of pop off and you don't even realize, right? So be really careful to check for broken buckles, which can get hit, uh, they can get crushed when you're slamming a car trunk. So be careful when you're putting stuff in your car trunk, because the number one place you can wreck your buckles is slamming a car trunk on it, because you have all kinds of buckles hanging off it. And if you wreck your, your waist buckle on a heavy pack, you are going to have a really sore pair of shoulders and back when you get back because the pack is supposed to bear on your hips, and that's what's going to take most of the weight. And if you're bearing it all on your shoulders and back, it's very, very uncomfortable. So always do a once-over of your pack uh, before you leave on a trip. And you know what? If you're really industrious, maybe have some extra buckles with you, because uh, that always goes a long way, especially for other people, right? Because just because you checked all your stuff doesn't mean that somebody else checked their stuff in the same manner. Um, so, yeah, extra parts for... for that you can use for packs is awesome. Um, I always make sure I have a couple pairs of sunglasses because in the uh, in the winter you get so much reflection. Um, I you know what I had a, I was traveling with a group of nurses that we took them on a trip and uh, they didn't tell us that the one girl was diabetic and we specifically asked if there's any health problems and uh, the girl had a diabetic issue while we were on the trip and so the nurses thought that because they were nurses they knew better and and that uh, that it would be fine but it you know what it put us all at risk. In a, in, in a way, because we're, we're up on the top of the mountain and somebody had a diabetic issue, right? So really try and make sure you know everything about medical issues in the group. Um, and uh, like I kind of mentioned before, packing uh, a light, small pack with heavy stuff is an awful idea. It's unbalancing, it's dangerous, it's painful, and uh, it seems like a good idea at the time. And sometimes it's an ego thing where you're like, oh, I fit all my stuff into a 35-liter pack. And when everybody else has 50 liter packs, just use a pack that's that uh, is reasonable for the weight, with good support in the in the hip belt and the shoulders and everything. Um, because you don't want to have be using the wrong pack for the wrong application. Um, and watch where you're camping in the winter. You can if you camp on top of a slough in the winter, you will get a really wet, damp, cold. Even though it's still frozen, it is noticeably colder there. And everything that you pack normally won't be quite warm enough when you're camping on top of a slough for some reason. We had that experience last year. It was so cold and it was only like minus 15 and we were so cold and it was because we were camping somewhere where there was a really high humidity level and uh, uh, it was really cold. Um, Another issue that we've had is uh, people from other continents that don't understand uh, the risk of large animals and so just Keep an eye on people like that and explain the rest to them because um, people from other continents they just they got they come from a different uh, experience and you know and they, they don't have to worry about those things so they don't uh, they might do things that you think are dumb just out of pure ignorance that they don't know any better right um, another thing we've had issues with is having too many uh, too many rookies on the trip and not enough experienced people and then what happens is sometimes you get kind of you get uh, a balance out of balance power wise as far as um, people thinking they know better and uh, 
and we've had some bad experiences that where trips have been ruined by uh, unruly people, one unruly person putting ideas in other people's heads that they know better, and when they don't. And uh, so you got to kind of make sure you have enough people who can speak with authority on a trip that you can uh, influence the group in a positive way to minimize uh, problems on the trip. You know, it could be just, it could be as, as easy as simple things like making sure that you, uh, uh, everybody's clear as to like the schedule that you're leaving on because you need to, based on your number of meals, you need to leave at, leave at a certain time so that you get back to town at lunchtime and not dinner time where you can miss the meal and you're exhausted. And little things like that, people don't even think about. They'll think, oh no, we don't, we don't, we want to sleep in. It's like, no, you don't understand. We have to leave because we're going to run out of food. And so there's, there's all kinds of things where it's, it's good to have as many competent people with you, because uh, it'll help balance out the incompetent people or the people with less experience. And you'll have less people to worry about and you'll have more people with extra gear and who are a little bit extra prepared. Um, and other things that we've screwed up on, like I've made so many mistakes, but it's amazing because we've made mistakes and we've had the luxury of coming back from them and learning from them, right? And that's where you make like learn the bulk of your really good knowledge, right? Um, don't split up. Um, don't take a different trail for fun and say we're going to bushwhack to this space, this place because you're going to make those decisions when you're halfway down the hill and nobody knew you're going to take that that different trail. That's not really a trail because it's winter. You think it's a trail, but there's the trail's under four feet of snow, so you follow the trail for 50 feet and then you veer off in a different direction because you can't tell if it's a trail anymore. I've had bad experiences with that, so. Just kind of have a really clear game plan of how you're getting to where you're going. Keep everybody together and make sure that any routes that you take are based on the lowest common denominator of skill level in the group and fitness level of the group. Because I've had bad experiences with that where the group decides, more experienced people in the group decide, we're going to bushwhack. And nobody really thought about the person who just is getting on to Nordic skis for the first time is not comfortable bushwhacking in Nordic skis. Sure. Yeah, and things like that. you got to put that ego and bravado aside at certain certain times. Yeah. And you know what? I was guilty, too, because, you know what? I, I went along with it. I let those guys make the decision. And it was a good experience for me because I after that, I'm like, you know what? Like, I'm going to not just follow these more experienced people um, without questioning because uh, I know for myself that I have a little bit more concern about the people with uh, less skill level and less fitness level in the, in the group. And uh, so in trips since... Since uh, that uh, incident, I've made sure that uh, things are handled in a much more reasonable way, right? Where you start thinking about the entire group and not just what a bunch of really advanced people think is a good idea, right? Um, another funny thing is um, bear spray. Um, you know, in shoulder seasons, you're still going to want to have your bear spray with you, especially in Canada and, uh, and you know, all over the northern United States. Um, they uh, It doesn't work in the cold. So bear spray is the one thing that we actually will take into our tent um, because it's we would rather have the bear spray with us in case something happens rather than to, and take the risk of the bear maybe thinking the bear spray is something that wants to investigate, right? Um, so what we do is if we think that we're going to need to use it, for example, say there's an animal for camp, we'll put it between our legs and warm it up first so that by the time that we think that we're going to have to do something, it's at body temperature and it's probably going to work. So it's really important to, because you, you don't want to be jumping out to use bear spray against whatever you think is out there and uh, having uh, having it not work at all, right? Um, so, yeah, and uh, another little uh, funny 
thing is if you're traveling with, uh, say, good examples, I, I met a man who's traveling with his daughters on a backpack trip, and his daughters pack the food. Make sure that everybody understands how many more calories a full-size man eats compared to a 16 or 18 or 20-year-old woman eats. Because sometimes we let uh, our wives or girlfriends or, you know, our friends pack the food and we're not aware of how many calories a larger person eats. And uh, we, we actually ended up giving this uh, dad, traveling with the two girls, his two girls, a bunch of food because they packed enough food for three girls and not two girls and one man. So it's, uh, it's important to, to make sure you've got your calories uh, well sorted and especially packing stuff that's not going to freeze. Uh, you don't want to pack anything to eat in the winter that's uh, that's going to freeze. So we take a lot of dehydrated food. But I do have to admit, for the first day, if I'm doing a multi-day trip, what I'll do is I'll, I'll take something really good to eat for the first day. Maybe something that's like a Indian food that's pre pre prepared in a in a mylar bag or whatever that you just heat up, pour it together, uh, and then you just eat it the first day and it's kind of gone, right? But typically, you don't want to take anything that's going to freeze as far as your your food. Um, but yeah, that's, that's basically, those are a bunch of the more, the more common mistakes. Um, shoulder season trips, I've ended up using a three season tent and just being so cold because, uh, there was snow. So have a good idea of, of what, uh, what you're going to be, uh, entering into. Um, I've also been on trips where there was snow and we didn't have snowshoes, so we're postal and that's an awful experience as well. So things like that, like know your environment know what you're getting into. Um, ask the park service. Like we in Canada we have a really awesome national park service and they have a really good idea of where all of the avalanche hazards are. They have a good idea of how much snow is out there. And uh if you're going out somewhere phone the parks, phone your local parks extension and ask them for, for help and ask them for advice. And you know, what what we do is is we actually uh because I, I don't like to um, take a lot of people through avalanche risk areas, high, high avalanche risk areas, what I do is I'll consult with the parks and I'll plan an alternate route that goes around all avalanche risks so we don't even have to worry about it, you know, and they can help you plan alternate routes for the max, to maximize the safety in your group and, you know, and make it so that you're not worrying about getting killed in an avalanche or, or you don't feel um, a lot of pressure having the lives of all these people uh, in your hands as a, as a trip organizer and, um, and putting them at their lives at risk, right? So, uh, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of really good resources out there for, uh, with, uh, the, uh, the parks uh, services as well that, that you can use. That'll save you from making a lot of these, these mistakes, right? So, yeah, definitely try to have a, a really good game plan as to what you're getting into. Very, very cool, man. Um, it's like a college course here in uh, winter winter survival, really. Um, what should a person do, though? You keep mentioning group, 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 group. Say somebody wants to get started in winter trips and all their friends think they're nuts um, yeah. and they don't know anybody crazy enough to winter camp or, or have the gear. How should they get started? Okay, so I uh, I didn't have any friends in winter camp before I started winter camping. So first things first, what you do is you go on a site like meetup.com, okay? And that's the one that, that most hiking groups that I, I know about are usually through Meetup. And so you go on Meetup and you type in, like, say, Austin, Texas hiking group. Go on there, there's an Austin, Texas hiking group. So you go and you sign up, you pay your fee, it's probably a little fee or whatever, and like 10 bucks or 20 bucks. 
you go and join up. So all of a sudden, you surround yourself with outdoorsy people that you can learn from. So, so then what you do, you start going on, on easy hikes and get your, your uh, skills up, get your, get your fitness level up, you know, get, get the proper gear. You know, maybe you don't have hiking boots and, and you're wearing blue jeans and you need to get some proper pants that aren't cotton-based and maybe you need to get some good boots that are sturdy with uh, good ankle support, right? Um, build up your skills. And then maybe what you do is you start out by going to like a summer backpack trip, something that's overnight, something that's easy, and you rent your gear. So when you first start out, you rent your gear and you, you figure out what you like, what fits good, uh, like say your backpacks, your tents, um, all that big ticket stuff that maybe costs like 500 bucks. Rent it a couple times and see if, see if it's, see if that tent's big enough. See if the tent is easy enough to set up. See if it's too heavy. Um, so, do it a little bit at a time, right? Like build up your skills. And then, and, and when you go on these trips, you're going to screw up. You're going to like forget one or two things. And you're going to be, man, I'm never going to forget that. Like my first backpacking trip, right when I stepped off the, the ferry to start this uh, trip called the West Coast Trail, um, I already knew five things that I should have left at home, you know, because I knew I'd carry it on my back. And I didn't want to carry it. So you start out, start out small, start out with, Join the hiking group, go on overnight backpacking trips after you get up to a physical, uh, a level of, uh, physical fitness that can handle it and, uh, start, start learning for people. When you're on a hike in a hiking group, first of all, you're surrounding yourself with, in my experience, highly intelligent and interesting people that are, they love to talk about outdoor stuff. And so you can just sit there and walk beside someone and talk to them and say, Hey, I really like your boots or Hey, I really like your pack. And they'll start telling you all about it. And they'll educate you on everything about that brand or Gore-Tex or Boots or whatever. And you start learning. You start picking up stuff. Eventually, what you start doing is you start going, okay, I'm competent at hiking, competent at backpacking. Let's try some uh, winter trips. Maybe I'll rent some snowshoes. Try a couple different kinds of snowshoes. Make sure I find the kind that is really easy for me to take on and off and that I can uh, that feel comfortable. And start doing some winter winter hiking. Um and then also, then you can start moving into winter camping. And once again, you go and you rent a, a winter tent. Maybe you rent a, a nice big backpack. And you go out and you, uh, you do, you do these, uh, you kind of, you build up and you start small. And you, you start going on more and more trips. And the good thing is, you're going to be surrounding yourself with people who hopefully, uh, know more than you do and can mitigate your risks and, um, can help you get equipment, help you pick out equipment educate you about stuff, educate you about uh, your the topography of your area. You're going to learn all about all the mountains in your areas, the streams, where where the passes are that you access these different places. You're going to become a, a uh, uh, an encyclopedia of, uh, of all of the different um, topography and mountains and stuff so you know how to get from point A to point B in your, in your area, right? And that's a huge asset, right? But uh, when you when you get to that point where you've mastered, say, all your skills, say you you're good at snowshoeing, winter camping, and winter or sorry summer backpacking, hiking, maybe doing some scrambling, which is basically um, steeper hikes where you have usually two feet and one hand on the ground most of the time. Um, at that point, what I did is I became a uh, um, an organizer, and I started organizing my own trips because then you can say. I've always wanted to do this trip. I need to organize a trip and go there. And I'm going to invite other people. And then you can, you can share your knowledge with other people 
And if you're part of a really organized hiking group, you can actually get free training through the hiking group. Like, they're organizers. They'll pay for organizers to get first aid training. They'll pay for them to get avalanche training. They'll pay for them to uh, to get compass and navigation training and things like that. Um, and, uh, yeah, and you'll get the experience of going out there and having problems on trips. Those are the best. Those are, if nobody gets hurt, those are the best experiences. Because, you know, like... There's, there's an emotional response to something that's gone wrong and that sticks in your head. And, you know, when, when you split up the group and you know you shouldn't split up the group and half the group is lost and the other half is at the hut and you're cold and you're tired and you're stressed out, the next time you're not going to do that because you had a bad experience and you learned your lesson. And luckily nobody was, nobody's injured and it was a, it was an overnight trip where there was very low risk of anything going wrong. It's an easy in, easy out sort of situation. But those are good experiences to have um, because you're going to learn the most from those. So it's those experiences that you're getting from this. You go out a hundred times and you're, each time you're going to learn something. It's going to be an amazing experience that you're going to keep with and you're going to share with other people. Just like heating up Nalgene bottles or or uh, don't, using, don't use compressed uh, gas in your stoves or... Uh, Make sure you have duct tape on all your poles because, like for me, I once went out cross-country skiing, got a blister. I realized that I had my entire first aid kit with me, but I keep my duct tape on my hiking poles, not my cross-country ski poles. Innocent mistake, and I never forgot it afterwards because it was a really hard go to get out of there with a blister on my foot. So these are the kind of things that you're going to go out there. You're going to get a really good idea of what clothes you wear that are comfortable. You're gonna, you're not gonna care if the gear geek over at REI said you have to use Gore-Tex or you have to use Merino wool. You're gonna say I've got a, I've got a fleece that's, that's uh, comfortable, that's just the right temperature for me. I've got a really breathable long sleeve shirt and I've got a, a base layer that I really like that keeps me dry and warm. And you're gonna, you're gonna figure out what works for you. But you have to get out there and you have to do it. And you have to like get out there in the, in the outdoors and you have to participate so you can get that experience so that you can figure out what works for you. And then you don't have to listen as much to these uh, these people who have a one-size-fits-all solution for you or a $500 solution for you in the hiking store. Uh, you can come up with your own solutions because you know enough and you have the experience and you know what you're doing. So, yeah, it's, it's really it's all about, Jack, it's all about starting out hiking and working your way up and getting out there. And, and once you get out there and join these hiking groups, you're going to surround yourself with people that are like-minded, that are into this, and you're going to find those crazy people that want to go winter camping. And you're going to befriend them, and they're going to invite you on all these trips. And they're going to share their knowledge with you, and they're going to sell you their old gear. And they're going to tell you about how they work part-time at outdoor stores to get stuff for cost because they're not rich. And so there's, it's, it's all about the community, getting plugged into the community. And once you do that, you'll never look back, and you'll be winter camping, snowshoeing, getting into detouring trips, mountaineering, you know, like you'll get into all that stuff. Very, very cool, man. Well, hey, I want to thank you for being with us today. Um, this has been a great interview, and uh, I plug your blog or what have you, but apparently you don't have one. Uh, no, I don't. So, uh, I, uh, I'm just a listener who has listened to one of your podcasts and made a couple comments and decided that we should talk. So, I uh, yeah, I don't have anything to gain by coming on here, and I just uh, want to make sure that everybody knows uh, where to get started because it's not so much 
about being an expert. It's about getting started and getting uh, getting experience, right? And everybody starts somewhere. And you know, it's hard because you don't know where to start, right? And that's kind of like trying to get across like where you start, right? Yep. Yep. So I, I'd like to express my appreciation for the fact that uh, you did come on the air today to share all this knowledge just because you wanted to share it with the community. And, and I'd like to thank you for doing so. Yep, not a problem. Thanks a lot, Jack. And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spearco today along with Damon Butts, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.